Hey friends, it's Corey Andrew Powell here, letting you know it's time to treat yourself with an exclusive Motivational Mondays deal at the NSLS shop. Listeners get 20% off shop-wide with the code MONDAYS. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Need a new coffee tumbler? Or perhaps you want to keep it classy with a new hardcover notebook? Well, get them on sale. Listen, with this deal, I'm tempted to trade in my bow tie collection for one of those cute NSLS hoodies. And don't forget, use code MONDAYS at checkout. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Enjoy that 20% off at shop.nsls.org. And stay motivated, leaders. Stay motivated. Hello, everyone. I am Corey Andrew Powell, and I'm really excited today to be joined by Rose Fast. She's the founder and chairwoman of Fast Forward, very clever name there, F-A-S-S, Forward Consulting Group, a leading-edge business transformation boutique firm. Now, Rose works with executive teams from Fortune 500 companies, delivering leadership methodologies and tools that enable clients to address tough challenges and solve complex business problems. And a lot of those also spill over into real-life challenges as well. She's been a guest on CNBC listed in Forbes 2012 Top 10 Women Business Leaders of New York and gained many other notable accolades. Rose, welcome to Motivational Mondays. Thank you. I'm excited. Oh, me too. So thanks for being here. And as I just dropped on you a few seconds before we began to record, I I found so much familiar about your book because as New Yorkers, I also worked uh, for Lord & Taylor, as you talk about in your book, and Saks Fifth Avenue. So we have that in common, which is funny. I think it's great. <laughs> yeah, totally. very good training, and that was, uh, you know, those those days brought about really excellent training and giving us the foundation mm-hmm. to do a lot of things going forward. So yeah, yeah, and there was a lot of I remember a lot of on your toes thinking because the customers were varied, and for me, I was it's on the sales floor, and I didn't really know what the day would bring. I mean, it might be an uptown businesswoman's wife and it might be someone there for the first time and they they need to have the experience be pleasurable because it stopped with me that first moment and in interaction so there was a lot that we did learn from that experience Absolutely. So, yeah. Absolutely. so you know you have this new book of course leadership conversation and um would you say that's the follow-up to the first one which was the chocolate conversation or are they different it is both a follow-up and then there are sections of it that are different. Obviously, I had the opportunity, Corey, to write this during the pandemic and life was very different. And I'm happy to report that I'm 74 years old. I have spent literally 42 years in corporate and then taking on this 21 years ago as part of that corporate experience, not literally working in corporate, but working with corporate And so in the pandemic, I started to think about what was going on on the world stage, the political conversations that were taking place, the lack of civility, and the amount of vitriol that I was hearing. Early days in the pandemic, I saw a wonderful shift in people having really substantive conversations about life and about slowing down and work family and all the things that you didn't have time for in a pre-pandemic world where you were running to offices and doing all this work. So there was a wonderful shift early on until things got unfortunately unsettled around everything that happened with George Floyd and then the ongoing issues about really determining what's going on here in our in our country and in our world. So uh, it gave me the impetus to start to think about these conversations. And 
So there's stuff in there about the chocolate conversation that I think is worthwhile and kind of a review. And then there's some new things that really deal with whether you're in business or just in your family. What can you do to have better conversations that lead to better outcomes? Yeah, that's so wise because I think with such a divisive time, as you've just mentioned, that we're facing from, especially on the political spectrum, um, I personally grapple with how do I define my relationships with people who do not agree with me on what I think are really fundamental things. But but it's very difficult because I love some of these people. Like if we had not dealt with a, a political conversation, we would have been like brother and sister, best friends. But there's this wedge because I don't know how to have those conversations with, you know, moving forward with someone that you love, but you see things differently. So I, I think your book is a good example of, it shows some examples of how we can do that. Yes. And, you know, we all grow up, uh, irrespective of whatever way we've grown up, that we start to form our own worldview. I talk a lot about that in both the chocolate conversation and leadership conversation. And that worldview, people fail to realize, is based on our own personal experiences. And in some cases, the way we interpret those experiences and then our own points of view. Not everybody shares those points of view. Not everybody had a similar experience. So trying to understand where someone else is coming from, I think is critical because the standards that we set for ourselves are just expectations we have of others that they may not have for themselves, you know? So I think it's a critical piece when I get into the worldview standards and concerns that we look at it from the standpoint that you're entitled to your point of view, but so is somebody else. Mm, very important because one of the things that has helped me as I've gotten older in life and just sort of began to take on more of a worldview because I was interacting with so many more people globally is that I can no longer project onto them what I would have done in a situation or what I would do. Because as you just mentioned, it's very based on my experience of how I've grown up or what was instilled in me. And it's not going to be the same for other people. So we, I think that's a big mistake we make often. We get mad about what people, how people react to things because it's not what we would have done. And it's being demonstrated for us, Corey. So we can't be so hard on ourselves. Our world leaders have failed miserably in being role model leaders. And there's a few that have not. I mean, we can all watch the Ukraine and we can see Zelensky and we can say, wow, Talk about stepping forward, mm -hmm. stepping up and into your leadership at a moment when everyone could admire it. But we've got a lot of world leaders that are too interested in bickering with one another and putting down people's points of view and not finding common ground that literally you can turn on the news every day and you sort of step back and say, where do I go for the compass that I need to follow? And so we have to have an internal compass. We have to figure out what it is that we need to do to create the change that we want to see in the world, because we're not necessarily going to get that from our government leaders. Mm, yes, very good point. I had to turn off a lot of the news on, on both sides. I just I was like, me too. It, it, it's, it's too much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, both sides have a negative for this. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think it's important as we look at it. And my father was uh, a World War II Marine. I write about that in the book. And he was ahead of his time in many ways. He was conversant in the Romance languages. And he used to say to me, I've just got one rule for you. Be up at 0600 ready for company. <laughs> um, and that's, that's great. Kind of all. 
That said it all. But we used to have people around our table that all came from different perspectives. And my dad was welcoming to everybody, no matter what they spoke about or how they interpreted things. And it gave a healthy debate. And such a difference between a healthy debate and a shout out. You know, like you're having that dueling monologue, which is so annoying because um, you're not hearing each other. Right. You're, that's exactly right. I mean, I've always often heard about the discussion of, of conversation is really you're processing what others are saying versus what most people do. They're just waiting for the other person to stop so they can just like <laughs> jump in and attack. Right. Right. And dad used to say to me, you know, Rosemary, if you have to shout, then you can't hold up your side of the argument. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's <laughs> a couple of great anecdotes from dad in here. <laughs> yes. I love this part. And I actually, I'm glad you brought that up because one part I love when you're talking about Jack Winters and that whole, yes. I don't want to give it away, but you know, he, Jack Winters picked up where my dad left off and taught me how to be a successful entrepreneur. But I, I'm so glad you brought this up because I wanted to ask you, number one, in negotiation, when everything is said, the first one who talks loses. I want to get into that. Now, is that like, does that indicate that whoever spoke first really is second guessing their last negotiating point? And so they might not have the strongest hand? Yeah. And put it very well, Corey. Think about this. You, in this particular case, Jack, of course, was referring to us presenting the new line, okay, that we were out there with retail outlets trying to sell. And he would say, don't be afraid of the silence. Don't be afraid. Someone's thinking. They're hearing what you've said. You said everything you need to say. Give them an opportunity to come back to you to ask a question, share an objection, a different point of view. Then you can respond. But if you jump right in and fill the space and fill the silence, you may end up buying back what you just got bought into. Um, and that's, that's something I never forgot. You know, when it's all been said and the negotiation is through, the first one who talks loses because then you may end up in a situation where you are defending rather than responding. Mm. I mean, when I read that, I thought about how we often feel like there's a need to fill the silence in conversation when someone's talking, right? And you just... And I, I mean, that was so profound, that one that one bullet. And quite honestly, all five of those points could be a, a show on its own. I'm just, <laughs> it's just, uh, I'm going to grab one more of those, which was, there are two times you can afford to be strong, which I love this one too. Because very often we always talk about when you have everything to lose. But you say, from dad's advice, uh, there are two times when you can afford to be strong, when you have nothing to lose, and when you have everything to lose. And I thought that was also very profound. Share a little bit about that. Yeah, so I'll give you an exact an example that's in the book. I was hired as one of two people in 1978, going back a long time. Two women uh, were allowed to come into the company, and this was Xerox early days. And the idea was that they would start to create a diverse workforce. Men of color were already in the, the system, but women not. So I had my first operations review and it was absolutely a disaster because I had been given a team and they took all of the prime real estate off of it and gave it to a guy. And I got left with sort of the dregs. So it was 29% of plan, Corey. Um, 
and I got up and all these ominous men sitting in the back and being very difficult. And they were hammering at me. How much talent does it take to be 29% of plan? And it was like, mm. it was brutal. And uh, there was a gentleman there, Holly, Hollis Chinky Fat. I will never forget it. God rest his soul. Jamaican, just a wonderful guy. And he was really concerned for me. And he was looking at me. He was one of my peers at the time and kind of giving me some encouragement. And that thing came into my head. There's two times you can afford to be strong. Um, when you've got nothing to lose and you've got everything to lose. And I knew that I had everything to lose because I was brand new and they could take me right out of this job. And I figured I got nothing to lose because they're already thinking I'm a, I'm a jerk. <laughs> so I, I looked at them and I said, you know, I've been in this job for 30 days. And they all looked at me as though I was going to make an excuse. I said, if I were 290% of plan, not 29% of plan, would you attribute that to my brilliance and my expertise? Mm. And David Bliss, also God rest his soul, great guy who later went and started a massive consulting firm, turned to him and said, she's got a point. We can't yes. throw the failure at her feet if, in fact, in 30 days she had that level of success. We wouldn't throw that at her feet. Right. You'd be a star. There was a moment when I had dad's voice inside of me and I said, okay, go for it. And it kind of got me through that particular review. And from that day forward, I started building back the, the business. And uh, I ended the year, believe it or not, at 89%, not at 100 But was given a great deal of praise for doing that much to bring it back home uh, with a team that didn't have a full course. So I think you have to pick your spots. But there are times when you just have to be courageous and you've got to say, you know, I've got to stand up for myself or for this particular ideal that I mm. believe in, yeah. whether it's popular or not. Mm -hmm. And also when it comes to the leadership conversation, so many of the leaders I've spoken to or successful people, I'll say on this podcast, whether they be in corporate America or maybe just someone from a local community that did something great and it's caught on in the world, there's always a moment it's a common denominator, I find, where they have been hit with adversity of some kind, whether it be competition or life threw something at them. And the only reason why they're still here standing, talking about it was because they were able to pivot, adapt, and adjust in an adverse situation. And when you talk about that story, it seems like based on your book as well, that was, again, instilled in you from a really great incident I love that involves your father again. <laughs> okay, so you had this wonderful story that you shared in your book that's tied to this again, because it's about pivoting in a time of adversity. And it's when you started like a hot chocolate stand and <laughs> it's so good. This story. I mean, I, I, I saw the whole thing, like, as you talked about it in the book and um, yeah, so you had this whole thing going on and then, uh, you know, the, the corporate, like the corporate response was like, they came and someone did it better than you with like a hot chocolate stand that served like hot dogs and marshmallows. And you had a meltdown at home, like what? But your father was like, you have to innovate. Okay. Don't just fold the, don't throw in the towel. You have to innovate. And then that brilliant moment comes. You're like, my brother could ski without ski poles. <laughs> and so we, nobody was serving it like, you know, mobily on the slopes. I must say this to all of your audience. What a lovely and wonderful demonstration of real listening. For you to have read this book, I have been on a number of podcasts 
and I'm probably considerably older than you. <laughs> and here you are, a lovely young man who takes the time to read the book and can pull stuff from it. And I think that deserves a big round. Oh, thank you. Very few podcasters do that, and they rely on the author to kind of fill in the blanks. Mm. It's remarkable. I just want to say that to you. I'm honored. Thank you so much. In response to that, I was 10 years old. We had just moved across the street from a golf course, and there was lots of snow in upstate New York. And my brothers were extraordinarily athletic, and I was born without a lick of athletic <laughs> I can sing, I can dance, but I have no athletic ability. So as you know, I convinced my father after being wrapped in snowsuits and sent off to the golf course to do what I couldn't do to get this hot chocolate stand going. And it was pretty successful. Then the golf course themselves, they had a snack bar that they saw what I was doing and they opened the snack bar and it was heated and they could offer hot dogs and they could do all of that. And I came home in the typical 10-year-old style, and I threw myself on the floor and basically said, these big people, and I was inaudible. Mm -hmm. My father told me, pull yourself together. And it was my brother who offered that he could ski with no poles, and I used to be jealous of him. And then I realized, well, this is a good thing, you know? We can collaborate and put something yeah. together here. Early days, great learning. He asked for a piece of the action. I wasn't so happy about that. <laughs> yeah. You have to give him something. Right, right. Uh, and he skied down and delivered the hot chocolate, which meant that these kids didn't have to climb all the way back up the hill because there wasn't any ski lifts or anything like that. It was a golf course. They got annoyed in the snacks, in the snack stand and realized, you know, I was being a pain and uh, I got acquired. Uh, Which is amazing. And my amazing little personality, <laughs> not all the people. So I learned something from that experience. Yeah. You have yeah. to figure out what can you do for the customer that's just that little bit of extra, mm -hmm. you know? That little extra thing. Yeah. And that also told, goes to another one of the points you mentioned in the book, which is uh, how to find your relevance, right? And I think that's another example. I love there's so much interconnectivity with everything that you've experienced that brings you to the next point. So that talks a bit about that, right? Finding why you are vital to a situation and understanding it. Is that what you mean by finding your relevance? I started this whole thought because corporations in the 90s were doing a lot of this process re-engineering stuff. And they were trying to figure out how they could become uh, stronger, more profitable, greater market share. And, and I recognize they were all focused on growth, scale, and productivity. This is a long way around the answer, but I want to give you a true answer. Yes, yes. And I thought to myself, the one thing that's missing in these large corporations that have been around a while is they don't focus on, are they still relevant? Was Blockbusters still relevant? Was Kodak still relevant? When the Amazons came in, were the retail stores still relevant? And the idea that every CEO was focused on growth, and I told one of them, no, you need to be focused on whether or not you're relevant in this market. And if you mm -hmm. ever watch the movie, The Blade Runner Curse, every mm -hmm. one of those companies featured in that out of business, 40 year shelf, shelf life. So that led me to the thought that there were four considerations to business, relevance, growth, 
on the opposite side, scale and productivity. Startups are extraordinarily relevant. What they have, and they're growing by leaps and bounds. What they struggle with is scale and Mm. profitability. So in that scheme, I started thinking about me as a leader or you as a leader or even an individual contributor. Are you relevant? Are you growing? Can you scale the practice you're in? Can you do it productively and profitably? So I said to myself, it's not just a business consideration. It's also a leadership consideration. And I would tell some leaders who like couldn't get around to all of their people struggling. I would say, look, are you relevant? Are you showing up in a way that your corporation sees you as someone that brings value? Can you grow? Are you still learning? Are you still growing or you think you know it all? Can you scale this management practice that you've got going, which is micromanaging everyone? And is your team productive as a result of it? So it had many variations and the depth of which simple method for evaluating where you are as a business and we're evaluating where you are as a leader in that business or even an individual contributor. Mm, Yeah. No, that's absolutely amazing because so many times people are, for different reasons, especially when it comes to minorities or people in ethnic groups, they are not often given an opportunity to be at the table to know. So they don't know who they are, right? They haven't been given a chance. So there's a whole other layer there when you throw in people who just don't know they are bringing value and they don't know. Maybe they've been sort of beaten down by their corporate structure. And a lot of that happens and you mm -hmm. have to figure it out and find people who are willing to support you. And there are people out there willing to support you. In fact, the best bosses I had were, were people of color. So willing to help women. Um, even this Hollis guy, I mean, from the beginning, uh, it was just tremendous. And I worked for a guy, Emerson Fullwood, who Bill McDermott also worked for, named him in his book, and he's the CEO of ServiceNow. I mean, there are certain people that really are there for you in your life. The chapter you're referring to is addicted to relevance. And I spoke about Stephen Jobs. He was addicted to being relevant. He didn't focus on, am I growing? Is it profitable? You know, are we scaling? He got to be so relevant that the rest just followed naturally. Look at how relevant Amazon is. The one mm-hmm. click. Could you live without it? I can't. No, me either. I never thought in a million years we'd be doing that. I always think of the taxi drivers that are feeling very irrelevant. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. You're not as old as I am, but there was never a time when I thought I'd get in a stranger's car. No, well, it's so funny. That's the antithesis of what we teach kids. Isn't that the funniest thing? I'm thought someone completely flipped that on its head. And now we literally get in a car with strangers as a business. And would you sleep at someone else's house as opposed to going to a hotel? Yeah, yeah. Airbnb. Life changes and relevance comes in. And what makes that more relevant makes you irrelevant. You have to keep, as you say, Corey, keep adapting, keep changing, keep looking out for the signals that are making you obsolete. Mm, Wonderful, wonderful words of wisdom from Rose Fast, founder and chairwoman of Fast Forward Consulting and the author of the new book, The Leadership Conversation, Make Bold Change, One Conversation at a Time. Rose, thanks for being here today on Motivational Mondays. I thank you. It was real. 
Thank you for listening to Motivational Mondays presented by the National Society of Leadership and Success and available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm Corey Andrew Powell, and I'll see you again here next week.